Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to a collaborative two-part series covering the life and the tragic death of Daniel Lebec. In part one of this series, Christy Lee on the Canadian True Crime Podcast shared a narrative account of the twists, turns, lies, and the violence that led to 20-year-old musician Daniel Levesque being found beaten to death in a Victoria, B.C. condo. We learned how Daniel, a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy from small-town Ravelstoke, B.C., moved to the comparatively big city of Victoria to pursue his dream of finding a career as a performing musician. Tragically, Daniel would only get a handful of weeks in Victoria to make things happen, as his time there and the dreams that brought him there would be snuffed out by the manager of the 7-Eleven Daniel had taken a job at. That manager, Josh Brito, befriended Daniel and weaved an intricate web of lies that played off Daniel's kindness, generosity, and his trusting nature. The lies would finally catch up to them both when Daniel showed up to what he thought was Josh's condo in what he expected to be an orientation for a new career as a legal secretary for Josh's mother's law firm. Instead, Daniel only found betrayal. There was no orientation, no job, there wasn't even a law firm. There was just the manager of the 7-Eleven, Josh Brito, a man Daniel thought to be a friend, but he couldn't have been more wrong. As Josh attacked the much smaller Daniel with a hammer, all the while preventing his desperate escape, the true nature of their relationship was revealed. Josh was obsessed with Daniel, and the lies had been little more than Josh's way to pursue a sexual relationship with the heterosexual employee of the 7-Eleven he managed. In tonight's episode, we'll dig even deeper into this story that should make anyone with a respect for justice scream. I'll be joined by another victim of this senseless crime, Daniel Levesque's courageous mother, Stacy Third. When I first uh, found out that I was expecting Daniel, I was 20 years old, and it was an unexpected pregnancy and pretty scary at the time. His father, Stephen, and I were high school sweethearts and scared and young and all that. But once Daniel came along, you know, he changed our life completely, forced us to grow up and and be parents and um he was just a, a joy from the very beginning where where in canada was it that that he was born in he was actually born in kamloops bc only because i had some complications with my pregnancy but we did live in revelstoke at the time mm-hmm. he was fine he was little tiny little baby only five pounds ten ounces and but a uh, big personality right from the get-go he was super funny and extremely intelligent before he could even talk he would wake up in his crib singing and singing singing songs that didn't have words they just they were melodies that he would make up and I don't know how a six and seven month old infant can know how to how to make a melody without knowing music was just quite amazing we always marveled at it quite a bit Um, and like I say did everything really early he walked early he talked early and when he talked he didn't ever shut up (laughs) he was such a talker and uh, he was articulate and thoughtful and a very, very sensitive little heart, even when he was a child. Mm -hmm. And when he was 21 months old, uh, 
I, we had our second child and his name is Christian and he was the apple of Daniel's little eyes. He just thought his baby brother was the best thing ever. And, and he was the best thing ever. And, uh, yeah, when Daniel was three and his baby brother was, uh, just over a year, um, their dad and I split up and, um, remained, both of us remained in Revelstoke at the time. And, uh, yeah, he very much part of their lives and we stayed fairly good friends and for most of the time and, um, agreed that raising our boys to love each parent was paramount. And that's what we did. I've read a lot of your, out of your blog where you share a lot of real personal information. And one of the things you shared on the blog was a story of, of a loss your family suffered early in Daniel's life, that being his, Mm -hmm. his younger brother. Could just tell me a bit about how that affected Daniel as a young boy, you know, living with that type of loss? Yeah, when uh, Daniel was three and a half years old, um, February 17th in 1995, uh, my mother and my grandmother had come to visit us for Christian's birthday. His second birthday was approaching, and we were having a little party with all his friends, and on they arrived on a Thursday night, and the boys and I went and picked them up from the Greyhound station and brought them back to our house, and my grandmother had my room and Daniel and my mother were sharing Daniel's room and the baby had his own room in a crib. And it was about 10 o'clock in the morning and the baby still hadn't woke up from his mor- for the morning. So I went in to go wake him up because he was wanting to visit with his grandmothers and he had passed away in the night. Um, it was a terrible, terrible thing. Clearly, uh, Daniel was standing right by my side when I found him in his crib. And, uh, of course, started screaming hysterically, and Daniel was asking me, Mommy, what's wrong with the baby? And uh, consequently, he was without any real cause of death known. They attributed it to sudden infant death syndrome. And so here was my three-and-a-half-year-old little boy, now my only child, that uh, had to watch me go through, and his father, of course, go through, you know, burying his little brother, not understanding why his brother wasn't around anymore. And it affected his life, uh, not in necessarily a negative way, and more of a life's too short kind of way. He was so compassionate. And even when he was still so small, you know, I would start to cry and he would be watching his cartoons and he'd just reach over and he'd wipe the tears from my eyes and he'd say, don't cry, mommy. And he would continually do that day after day. Here was my three, then four, then five-year-old son. He even knew then how hurt it was for a mother to have to bury a child. He recognized early, early, early on in his life that he was different than most kids because he knew loss. But knowing loss always, you know, you don't know true joy until you've had true loss, and he he knew that. And we were very open about all of that, always answering questions. He did go to counseling for a while uh, when he was very small, but they really thought that he was processing this loss quite well, and I think he really did. But it was always a little empty spot in his heart for obvious reasons, and he he just missed his little brother. And we talked about him a lot, though. Now, as uh, aside from you know experiencing loss like this early on, what else do you see as some defining moments in Daniel's life that helped shape the man he he became? Well, music was a huge deal to him, and. He was a poet and a singer, and he wrote things all the time, poems and writings of things that just would blow your mind, to be honest. He called himself the boy who thinks in song. Everything was about music, you know, how he spoke, how he wrote, how he processed his feelings. Mom, you've got to listen to this song. Just listen to this song, listen to the words he'd say to me all the time. And, And music's always been a very big part of my life, too. I 
our family sings all the time. We're singing in the shower. We're singing to our cats. We, it was our life. Music was our life, and music was what made him who he was, for sure. A lot of the story that we'll talk about takes place in Victoria, BC, and I understand his motivation to to leave home and go to Victoria had a lot to do with his interest in music. Can you talk a bit about when he decided to go to Victoria and what his his reasoning was? Absolutely. He um, just to back it up a tiny little bit. When Daniel Daniel was very intelligent, pretty much a straight A student throughout his whole high school career. We all and elementary. We all had huge hopes for him. He wanted to be all sorts of things while he was growing up. And they were, you know, from a doctor to a chef to a, anything that would um, use his brains and his creativity. And he was really, really excited about his future. And then when he was in about, well, I think when he was about 18 years old, he said, you know, mom, I've decided what I want to do for a living. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, I think I want to move to Seattle and work in a coffee shop so I can play my music. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's not really going to university. But that dream of doing that uh, in Seattle changed to Victoria. He had um, two wonderfully close friends who were brother and sister, and he, they were encouraging him to come west. And so one day he just said, Mom, I want to move to Victoria. And I was so happy to hear that because I, Revelstoke's a very small community, and I thought Daniel needed to be somewhere bigger. He was really had kind of outgrown Revelstoke, and... Um, and his music, he was wanted to play music. So he packed up what little he owned and decided, I'm going off to Victoria. I'm going to find a job and I'm going to play my music and I'm going to get discovered. And and it was really, I, I very much encouraged him to move to Victoria. I thought it would be so great for him. And, and, and how old was Daniel when, when he did move to Victoria? He moved to Victoria in June of 2011, which was just after his, 20th birthday. His birthday was March 25th. He spent his birthday in Revelstoke, but uh, moved about a week and a, a little bit over a week later. Mm-hmm. And I understand from the time he, he arrived in, in Victoria, it wasn't very long until he crossed paths with who would become his killer, Josh, Josh Brito. Can, can you tell me about how Daniel and Josh became connected, how, how that happened? Absolutely. Uh, so Daniel was hoping for this one job when he was arrived in Victoria. And when that didn't work out, he decided he better, better hit the pavement looking for a job. And on this particular day, I would, I'm not a hundred percent sure exactly the date I'd have to look, but I would, it would be about the middle of June. He said, I'm going to take the bus into the city with one of my friends and we're going to go to the work BC it's called here, where you can look for jobs and write resumes and things. And I'm going to find something and I'm going to apply at all sorts of places. And he's pretty excited about it. And, I wished him the best, and as the story went, he said he got off the bus, and the bus stopped outside the 7-Eleven, and there was a big, we're hiring sign in the window, so he thought, well, I'll apply there first. He walked into that 7-Eleven and asked if he could speak to the manager because he was wishing to apply for a job. Later on that day, he messaged me and said, Mom, he he told me that exact story and said, I never even made it to work BC. The manager came out from the from the back room at Seven Eleven, and he hired me on the spot. Uh, I start tomorrow, and I was like, "Wow, good for you, Daniel." And he said, uh, "You know, maybe don't tell everybody that I work at Seven Eleven. It'll only be temporary, <laughs> Mom." But he said, "I I need to start somewhere," and I and the manager seemed to really like me, and I'm I'm looking forward to starting there. And of course, the manager was Josh Burrito at the time, although Daniel didn't know him by that name. That he introduced himself as Josh Buxton to Daniel. Um, we we know from court he'd seen Daniel on the closed circuit television, and he he came out to look at 
look at him and when he hired him on the spot he said to Daniel you know you look just like the lead singer from Headley that just really that was a bit that was the beginning of the, the stars in Daniel's eyes I think like he he just this guy thought he was great already and he only known him for five minutes so that was how they met and he did start the next day and and uh, their friendship started that that day as well and just progressed until August 3rd but you know again this was the middle of June and Daniel died on August 3rd so it really wasn't that much time to get to know each other but in that time they did a lot of things so that was how they were introduced yeah and when I hear, hear the stories of of Daniel and, and Josh's relationship it, it the word that comes to mind to me is like grooming it seems like like Josh was really trying to win Daniel over and, and exaggerate his his position in the world uh, Josh's position in the world that, that is are you aware of when this really started with with Josh um again quote unquote grooming Daniel yes actually it started literally on the very first day uh, that he started work i remember receiving a text from Daniel saying mom mom my new boss is so cool he you know he he, I don't really understand why Josh felt that he had to build himself up to Daniel. I mean, Daniel was such a easygoing kid who just um, liked everybody. And he, I imagine that if Josh had been honest about who he was, Daniel would have cared, you know, cared for him as a friend as much as he did with the stories. But yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with the word grooming uh, in a way because he started from the beginning and uh one of the first things that he shared with Daniel was that his parents were both wealthy lawyers that owned a law firm in Calgary and one in Victoria. He uh told Daniel that he owned, that his parents owned a, an upscale apartment right downtown Victoria and that that's where he lived. He he explained to Daniel that he had no bills whatsoever that the uh, he just worked at the uh, 7-Eleven for extra money. So this is how he could afford all these fancy dinners and, fat, you know, going out to the bars and buying Daniel drinks and plying him with anything that Daniel wished for and what he wished for. And um, He also told Daniel that he was involved in a, uh, with a mayoral candidate in Victoria who was running for, for mayor that year and that he was his political advisor is what Josh said and that um, he knew all sorts of people and I remember Daniel telling me a story that they would be they were walking down government street in Victoria and said and stop this man who was some sort of a politician and he said oh I don't remember the man's name I don't know if I ever knew but Daniel said mom it was so cool Josh stopped him right in the middle of the street and said oh so-and-so I want you to meet my friend Daniel and Daniel this is the finance minister for British Columbia the gentleman, you know, shook Daniel's hand and, and you know, he, Daniel was in awe. He's like, man, Josh knows so many very important people. When, in fact, you know, I imagine this finance minister was probably just shook everybody's hand and, and Josh made it sound like he knew him personally. That's how Daniel saw it, which I'm sure he did not know that person at all. Sorry to pull you out of the conversation, but I want to take a moment to set up what you're about to hear. During our talk, Stacy and I spent a significant amount of time discussing the near-endless and puzzlingly elaborate lies that Josh Brito constructed, presumably to impress and gain the attention of her son Daniel. This section of our talk, sadly, could have formed a series of episodes, but in the interest of time and clarity, I'll instead highlight the lies that most closely relate to the events leading to Daniel's death. After we take a short break, you'll hear some pieces of the conversation that I see as sort of a collage. I suppose you could call this section of the episode 
Josh Brito's Collage of Deceit. We'll get to that right after this break. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. He uh, gave a big sob story to Daniel. Daniel had recently broken up with a girlfriend, his longtime girlfriend from Norway, um, at when he was in Victoria is when they broke up. And they, so he had a bit of a broken heart, and uh, Josh explained to Daniel that he had a fiancé that had just uh, broken up with him. Josh explained that she had dumped him for no real reason. He um, explained to Daniel that his mother, Josh's mother, had bought him and his fiancé uh all-inclusive ticket and trip to Cuba, but now she couldn't go because now they were broken up. So he eventually, within a couple of weeks of knowing Daniel, asked Daniel if she maybe if he maybe wanted her ticket. Daniel just thought that was the best idea ever. Daniel's never really been anywhere except Norway, never been anywhere hot, and he just thought that would be such a great idea. He explained to me very many times how he felt that him and Josh were helping each other get over their broken heart. He also told Daniel that he himself had been in law school. He had only one year left to become a lawyer, but he quit because his father had fallen ill with cancer, terminal cancer, in fact, and had subsequently died a few months before he'd met Daniel. This is the story that he was telling. Um, after his father's supposed death, they found out that his father had, had, had taken on a lover that had produced a child, and now this woman was contesting the will because she had an heir to this massive fortune that the father had left behind and that the whole family was in upheaval because of it. Um, all of this is not true at all, but uh, Daniel felt so sorry. He just thought, you know, poor Josh has so much on his plate. Like, here he is, the glue to his family and trying to help them all through all this terrible time with his father's state. Um, plus, his girlfriend has just dumped him. And it was just one like a sympathetic story after another just playing on Daniel's heartstrings you know I think Daniel said to me one time I don't know why bad things happen to good people and what we have found out since of course is that Josh did have a girlfriend he liked her very much he met her family they all knew him they thought he was a great guy once Daniel came into his life um, and hired on everything changed with their relationship he stopped talking to her, he started lying to her, he was making up things, she was getting very frustrated, and would never let Daniel and her meet. He kept those two parts of his lives very compartmentalized, and, and the one and only time that their paths crossed, she had come into 7-Eleven, and he introduced Daniel to her uh, as one of the regional managers of 7-Eleven, and he said, don't talk to her, she's not a very nice person, and so Daniel stayed away thinking that she was this regional manager when in fact after speaking with her which I have many times I find out that it was actually her and oh. she couldn't understand why Daniel wouldn't talk to her Daniel was afraid to speak to her because he, she was apparently very mean to Josh which isn't true and so he very made very big efforts to keep the two of them away from each other so that there was never any known relationship between any of them mm -hmm. all the while um, admitting later on of course 
Josh saying that his feelings for Daniel were changing and they weren't healthy feelings and uh, he was attracted to him on more than a friend level which he knew very well that Daniel was not um, that he was attracted to women and Hen was dating a few women and had gone on some dates and Daniel didn't know Daniel didn't know that he was gay Now, those were just a sample of the lies and misrepresentations Josh had fabricated during the two months he knew Daniel. But in this quickly escalating game of dishonesty, Josh was about to take a big step, one that would soon lead to Daniel learning the true nature of their relationship, tragically when it was far too late. As we get back to the conversation, Stacy will describe the non-existent job at the imaginary law firm that Josh promised Daniel. I would say at the end of July, I started getting messages from Daniel about this law firm in Victoria was looking for a, a new legal secretary. This law firm that does not exist, let's keep that in mind as I tell the story, uh, but Josh coached Daniel to uh, believe that Josh had spoken to his mother, who was the president of this law firm, and that they were to meet Daniel because he highly recommended Daniel as a, as a potential legal secretary that could be trained on the job. Uh, the mother apparently agreed and thought that this was a great idea and hired Daniel without, you know, just on Josh's word. Uh, Dan, Josh would very often type messages to his mother and I say in quotations, accidentally send them to Daniel and then say, oh, sorry, that one was for my mom. But in these messages, he was saying things like, oh, Daniel's so good with people. He's so smart. He's such a quick learner, you know, and all these things and blah, blah, blah. So Daniel was very excited, so excited, as a matter of fact, he'd given a two weeks notice at the uh, 7-Eleven. He was going to go to work for this law firm in downtown Victoria, and he gave his two weeks notice to be finished uh, in and around the middle of August so that he could come home, wanted to have a little visit with us. Plus, they were, of course, going to Cuba because Daniel had agreed to go with Josh to Cuba on this fake holiday that didn't exist. Um he, I saw Daniel for the last time on July 31st, I believe it was. I was in Vancouver. Daniel took the ferry over from Victoria to Vancouver and had a nice, beautiful dinner with my grandmother. And Daniel was explaining to us how, you know, he, he was so excited about this new job. He was going to meet his new boss on August 1st. She was flying in from Calgary to meet Daniel, and they were going to start an orientation. I asked him at that time, you know, do I need to help you buy some clothes maybe? Like, should we get you some dress pants and things? And he said, no, the the firm has a clothing budget. Um, part of my orientation will be going to um, a suit store and will be buying me some suits. It's part of, part of my package. He did ask me at that time to make him a dentist appointment. He had a, he felt that he needed to get his, one of his teeth fixed and, the only reason I mention this is because he said, you know, I'm going to be home in the middle of, of August. I'd like to go to the dentist. And then a day and a half later, he messaged me and said, oh, mom, I talked to Josh about my dentist appointment. You don't have to make it because I guess the law firm has a very great dental plan and I'll just do it here. So Josh had convinced him that he would be getting paid so much more money at this law firm. He would have this clothing allowance that would afford him the ability to buy beautiful dress clothes. He was going to be trained for a career that Daniel would be very you know, we look, look very much forward to. And on top of it all, this very new best friend of his, uh, his mother was going to be Daniel's boss, and he thought that was just great. He said, hmm. August 1st rolled around, and 
she was unable to come. Josh said, uh, sorry, we're going to have to postpone this uh, orientation. His younger brother, Matthew, had fallen ill. And he was, her mother was not allowed, was not able to travel that day, but that she was rescheduled her, her uh, arrival to be August 3rd when, the, when Matthew felt better. Of course, none of that was true. No law firm, no package, no nothing. Are you aware of Daniel having any doubts about Josh's stories or, or would he have gone into this completely believing the, the stories Josh had told and the lies he built up? Yeah, he really did believe them. Um, when I did see him that day, that um, last time that I saw him on this on July 31st, I did say to him, "How come, you know, how come he's being so nice? You know, like whatever." Yeah, I couldn't. I I had some doubts. I wasn't. I don't know if I was really suspicious, but I just I said, "Why? Why you, Daniel? Like why? Why would he be so interested in helping you?" And he just said, "Mom, that's just who he is. He's the he's the nicest person in the world. He's just he's taken me under his wing, and he's just wonderful to me." My only step, um, speculation was I couldn't understand why he chose Daniel. I, as a matter of fact, I have a message that I sent to him that said, uh, t- tell him thank you. T- tell him thank you from me. I'm just so happy that he's so good to you, you know, and please tell him thank you. That was one of the last messages I sent to him, actually. No, I understand that you ended up being one of the final people that Daniel spoke to, which turned out to be before he went to this um, orientation for the quote-unquote law firm. I, as you mentioned, it had been delayed quite a bit, this meeting of Josh's mother, but I believe when it finally was going to happen, Daniel had spoke to you shortly before going. Can, can you tell me a bit about that communication? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was August 3rd. Uh, he... Um, messaged me first thing in the morning and he said this is this is word for word uh good morning mom wish me luck it's my orientation day today with a bunch of happy faces and i said good luck daniel i'm so proud of you i know she's gonna love you you know you good luck today just be yourself and you know not you know that's how i said it and he was very thankful and then you know that was probably i think around uh, noon that afternoon and then at 2 30 he messaged me again and he said i'm on my way mom he Daniel didn't have a car, so he was getting on. I, I, I now know he got into a bus, onto a bus, and he said, I'm on my way now, Mom, um, heading over to Josh's apartment, what he thought was Josh's apartment, which wasn't his apartment at all. It was uh, his, that other girlfriend that he had. Um, and I'm, I'm headed there now, so he just let me know at 2.35, I believe, or 2.38 was the last text I got from him, and, and he, was, he was dead by 5.00. Uh, and when, like, so you got that message at around 2.35, when did you hear that something went wrong and something had happened? Like, how did how did this news get to you? It's kind of a, well, this whole story is sad, but it's very sad. I, uh, when I didn't hear from Daniel after his, orienta- his supposed orientation, I thought it was kind of unusual, especially because he was so excited. And But I did know he had other plans after, and I just figured I would speak to him in the morning. My son Joel and I went to a movie that night and um, got home a little bit late. Uh, I was to be resting for work, and uh, so the incident took place uh, around 5 p.m. that night. By the time it was all said and done, they went by Daniel's driver's license and uh, found Jackson at the house on the address on Daniel's um, BCID, informed Jackson of what had happened, and that was how the police at around 22 o'clock that night uh, found out who I was. Of course, I have a different last name than Daniel, so 
they were able to know from Jackson that I lived in Revelstoke and they contacted the Revelstoke RCMP that night. The RCMP came to my house at 1 o'clock in the morning on the 4th um, and knocked, and Joel and I did not hear them. They came back again at 3 o'clock in the morning and knocked again. We didn't hear them again. And then at 8 o'clock in the morning, it woke Joel up, and uh, it was the police who could see them, and we didn't know why they were coming to the door, of course. He he thought it might have something to do, if you can believe this, is how innocent our life used to be. Uh, Joel had a freestanding basketball net and out in our driveway, and he thought that maybe the police wanted it moved. And I, it was that was the first thing he thought when he saw the, the gentleman at the door. They asked if they could speak to, if I was home, and if they could speak to me, and he came to get me, and he said, Mom, it's the police are at the door. And as soon as those words hit my ears, I screamed, Daniel. Like, I just knew something had happened to Daniel. I don't know how I knew that. But I ran down the hallway, and they said, uh, are you Stacy Thayer? And I said, I was. And they said they regretted to inform me that my son Daniel had been had died on the night before. And I collapsed in my 15-year-old son's arms, of course. I fell backwards in despair. Uh, the rest of it's kind of a blur, but um, uh, the, the RCMP here in Revelstoke very kind. Uh, they brought a victim services fellow with them. He stayed with me while I threw up in the toilet. Um, could only say to me by giving me a card of who to call. I was meant to call a Victoria policeman and um, uh, I don't know what he was. I, he, I only ever spoke to this fellow once, but he was able to tell me that Daniel had been involved in an altercation. This was a couple of hours after I found out mm-hmm. when I was trying to piece it all together that he was involved in an altercation and that, you know, he wanted to know as much as he could about Daniel and things like that from me. Um, One of the very first things I said to him is, how's Josh? And the fellow said, on the other end of the phone said, why would you ask about Josh? And I said, well, he's one of Daniel's best friends. And if Daniel was out, he would have been out. He, you know, they spent, you know, a lot of time together. And I just, if Daniel was involved in something, then, Josh might be hurt too. That was that was my first, you know, funny that I should have thought that. They were very shocked. They wanted to know, immediately wanted to know the relationship between Daniel and Josh. And I explained to them that they were friends, close friends, and that he was his employer. He was the manager of the 7-Eleven in Victoria. And then I said, why are you asking me so many questions about Josh? And that was when they informed me that Josh was too, was also involved in this altercation and that he was currently being held responsible for Daniel's death. So that was my first knowledge of that. I still didn't know what happened. People were reporting in the news that Daniel had been stabbed. Uh, the, the police at that stage would not um, confirm or deny how Daniel died or, or anything. They would, could only tell me that he was dead and that Josh was in custody. And Now, could you tell me when you when you learned the story of what actually happened in that apartment and, and tell me as well what what the version of the story was that you heard? So the police were very tight-lipped right from the beginning. What they could tell me for sure was that there had been an altercation in that apartment, that both Daniel and Josh were both had been both injured, and that when once taken to the hospital, it was noted by one of the physicians that the doctor did not think that Josh had been the victim, but probably the aggressor. Daniel had died. Josh was superficially wounded 
and it was very contrary to the story that Josh told. When he called 911 that evening, he told the police, and then again when they arrived, that Daniel had freaked out on him and attacked him with a knife and stabbed him, and in retaliation, Josh had hit him with a hammer. He pl- he pretended to be the victim the entire time. When they walked in, Daniel was face down on a pile of blankets and pillows. Um, um, when they turned him over, they recognized that he was in medical distress. He was already blue. He wasn't breathing. When uh, they saw Josh, uh, he was laying on the floor, covered in blood. They treated him immediately, took him priority to the uh, hospital. When it came out, of course, in trial, it was determined that the lion's share of the blood on Joshua's clothes that was Daniel's blood. He had, in fact, after having said that Daniel had stabbed him, it was determined um, forensically that he had attacked Daniel first and went rummaging through the drawers in the kitchen and found a knife and stabbed himself. They know that because Daniel's blood was in the drawer where the knife was stored. Josh's story did not add up right from the beginning. As a matter of fact, he went straight from the hospital with Band-Aids because that's all he required. He did not even require a stitch in any of his wounds. Um, He was remanded straight away to the Victoria Police Department and, and booked. They didn't charge him immediately. You know, they had to go to a, a, a judge and and uh, and charge him. But it was within the first two days that he was actually charged wow. with second degree murder. And then and then it was a big job. It was a it was a complete it was a huge job to determine what actually happened because all the while for the next six years, Josh would deny having anything to do with Daniel's death and maintain that he was the victim and that everything he did was in self defense. What the what the police told me what was what we know and what we can prove are two different things and they just spent years and years it felt like um doing that you know finding things that they could use to to prove that daniel was a victim because they they truly believed it they they knew that daniel was the victim but thankfully we had they had such a good forensic team that um they were able to gather a lot of evidence that uh, they they were it was painstaking for them they made it their point to prove that they knew that the story that josh was telling was not true Initially, investigators may have been reasonably certain that that Josh was the instigator, but for some reason, charges were dropped shortly after they were originally laid. And I understand this had to do with the original—I don't know if it was the autopsy or the or the ruling of of how Daniel died. Can you talk about what led to those original charges being dropped and Josh being basically let go? I think two months after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Well, first of all, the the charges were never dropped; they were stayed. Um, important to note that because uh, charges being dropped would be mean that he was no longer under investigation, and that was not true. The charges were stayed, which meant that until they could get more evidence, they which they intended on doing, that that door was still open. When they took Daniel's body to Vancouver to, for the to the forensic pathologist, Dr. Carol Lee, she did his autopsy, and the manner of death was ruled. Uh, death by cocaine toxicity. That's something I hadn't mentioned and feel very uncomfortable with um, in all of these stories is that it was a fact that Josh was buying cocaine and Daniel was using it as well with him. But there was indeed cocaine in Daniel's body that day and so uh, Dr. Carol Lee determined that that was the cause of death. And that was a huge blow to us. It was something I was unaware of. I didn't know of Daniel's 
uh, drug use. I didn't. It wasn't a major issue in his life. It was determined by the toxicology test. The toxicologist did testify, saying that Daniel was a less than recreational user by the amounts of residue left in his body. But uh, it was known throughout the investigators that the amount of cocaine that was in Daniel's body was not of lethal dose. Uh, they believed that with their whole hearts and continued to fight for Daniel because they did not believe that Dr. Lee had done a proper, a proper report on, on his actual autopsy. Um, you know, it was noted that Daniel had been struck on the head at least two times with a hammer so hard that the hammer was broken. The head had broken right off. It was, you know, that's pretty hard hit to, uh, back of his head to, uh, break a hammerhead off of it so you know there was that as well as the fact that he was black and blue he fought for his life he was screaming to be let go there was neighbors that heard this there's neighbors that testified at trial that they heard him open the door and say help me somebody help me and then the door slammed shut and then please let me go please let me go you know all these factors were things that dr carol lee knew and uh, ignored as far as we were concerned we did end up getting another forensic uh, pathologist to look at Daniel's notes. Of course, he didn't ever see Daniel himself, so he could only go by what uh, Dr. Lee's notes and photos and things like that. But uh, you know, it was determined after Dr. Lee looked again at Daniel, changed her manner of death to be cocaine toxicity in the setting of violence. So she did acknowledge after her second review that there was violence that contributed to Daniel's death, but the original autopsy is what led to uh, Josh's charges being stayed at the moment. Uh, he was released early December of 2011 and was to remain free um, until December of 2012. And, and what is it that changed um, about a year after Daniel's death that led to the charges being um, put against Josh again? Was it the change in the, in the cause of death or what was it that, it was uh, partly the change in uh, in the manner of death, but on top of that, and most importantly, they knew it wasn't self-defense, but they needed to prove how they knew that. And by the interviews with the neighbors hearing Daniel calling for help and knowing by reading um, Josh's texts about his feelings for Daniel and his want of a sexual relationship with Daniel, that they were able to charge him with first-degree murder, forcible confinement, and sexual assault. Daniel was not sexually assaulted at the time, but because the attack took place during an attempt to sexually assault someone, that immediately upgraded the murder charge to first-degree murder. Okay. And now these charges were placed almost six years before a verdict was eventually met or, or a plea was, was made. What led to such massive delays in, in this case? Um, well, we did go to court in 20... 20- uh, it started in January of 2015 and went to March 2015. We had a jury that had been selected uh, that was present every day. And in three months, it was one delay after another. You know, the defense doing their job was able to just put up roadblocks where a lot of the evidence that we had were, specu- it was, everything was speculation. Uh, just salt in our wounds, you know, he was just... Uh, kept asking for recesses, kept suggesting that he um, needed more time for this. And in fact, he'd had four years to get his stuff together. There was a couple of little glitches with the Crown's case, too, that were unfortunate. Some some oversights, not necessarily with evidence in itself, but just with processing. 
Um, of course, the defense, being a good defense lawyer, he was able to take advantage of those. And in fact, with all the delays and all the time that the jury had had to be excused, the judge at the time did declare a mistrial in March of 2015. Which a mistrial, of course, is not an innocent verdict of any sort. Uh, Josh was remanded back to the Victoria prison that he was in. And uh, we were to go back to court again the following October. Of course, that didn't happen either. (laughs) It was just another thing after another thing after another thing. And yeah, it just, when the Jordan decision came down in in 2014, which was a decision by the Supreme Court of Canada involving a speedy trial, I knew that uh, Josh's lawyer was arguing about that, wanting to uh, have a decision made on his behalf regarding the um, amount of time that he had sat in remand. He'd been in there since December of 2012, and here it was, 2016. That was a a big battle for us, too. There was nothing that the Crown could really do. Law is law. It was indeed a fact that he had been in remand longer than he should have been um, because of legal delays, because of lack of uh, court time, because of, you know, just scheduling conflicts. There was all sorts of stuff that was beyond so many people's control that led to the possibility that he would be released without charges at all. You you must have a, there was a maximum amount of time you were allowed to be in jail before having start to finish from arrest to uh, trial. I knew that this was going to be a problem for us, and it was, and it, and it definitely was. They did do the argument shortly before the plea deal was come, was come had come up. They had done an argument in front of a judge where the Crown argued why we should continue on with the trial and the defense argued why he should be released because he'd been in jail too long, which was by his design. He never ever one time asked for bail. He didn't ask for any kind of release. He stayed in jail this entire time and, uh, well, and it benefited him to the, in the end. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the judge never did come up with a, with a, uh, a decision on his human rights being violated. Uh, with the time frames, uh, because before the judge actually made that decision, the defense approached the Crown with a plea. When they approached them with the plea deal, I was told immediately. And part of the part of the um, the pros of it would be that there could be no appeal. Whatever he was sentenced to, whatever he was to serve, would be the end of it, and we would never have to go to trial again. And and for myself and my two children, that was huge to me. This the whole legal battle for the last six years took such a toll on my children and, and myself and my finances. It was just so excruciating. Um, another pro for the for the plea deal was that you know the crown did make it clear that it was very likely that he may not ever get anything. He may be released with no charges at all because of the Jordan decision. That was a very, very big possibility. And having said all that, you know, if that was to have happened, there would have been no accountability, which was extremely important to my kids and I and to to Daniel's father. And not only that, but by even just this plea, which was far less than what he deserved, he will always have a, a conviction on his record. He will never be able to walk around without people knowing that he's done what he's done and had everything been dropped and we didn't win anything, he would be a free man for the rest of his life. There wouldn't be anything we could do about it. So there was that too, like the guarantee of having some sort of record, some sort of, you know, he had to, he had to register his DNA and, you know, he had to admit something. He had to say something. 
keep when you make a plea deal, you have to tell them what happened. And he did tell them his version, which was similar to what I thought, similar to what the Crown thought. I mean, he couldn't keep lying anymore. He had to take some accountability, and that was that was huge to me in particular. And what what was what was the story that he told in his his version? The story that he told uh, was that he um, that he had lied and that he was in a very bad place at the time. He was uh, a heavy drug user and drinker, which was unlike his character before. This is what he said. He uh, had be- developed an unhealthy infatuation with Daniel and had desired more uh, more than a friendship with him. He um, lured Daniel to that apartment that day on the pretense that he was going to uh, have an orientation with a law firm that did not exist, with a mother that did not come there, didn't isn't a lawyer. And he said that when Daniel arrived, he uh, told him that there was no orientation again, that Daniel started to figure some things out, started to ask questions about all the lies that he'd been telling and wanted to, and got very mad and wanted to leave. Josh then said that the prospect of Daniel leaving his life forever and possibly telling everybody of all his lies was enough for him to want to not let Daniel go. And in a fit of rage, he himself um, attacked Daniel. And that Daniel fought back. And then he did admit that he did make it look like he was the victim. He stabbed himself. He admitted all of those things, which I do think are all true. Mm -hmm. What I don't agree with is I don't think Daniel ever questioned him. And I could be wrong. I feel like, especially because Daniel's wounds are on the back of his head, my personal feeling is is that Daniel didn't know what hit him, literally. Uh, but other than that, it was everything that we had already proved. So, you know, it was very easy for him, for Josh, to be able to give this statement of facts using all of the stuff that he could not disprove with his lawyer. He basically told us nothing we didn't know. And I imagine that there is far more to that story. Mm-hmm. And now what he eventually was charged with through this plea deal was was manslaughter, which led to a much shorter uh, time in prison. And of course, given the amount of time he spent before his conviction, uh, getting credit for time served, he was only, I believe, originally scheduled to have, uh, I believe, about two years in prison after his conviction. But that, and again, I'm getting to the what I see as another big injustice, and and that's Josh's early release from prison, and the way your family was was I guess uninformed of this. Can, can you just talk a bit about when you first learned that he actually got out quite a bit earlier than anticipated? Yeah, absolutely. His sentence after time served was for two years less a day, mm-hmm. which afforded him the ability to be sentenced in a provincial prison rather than a federal. Um, I knew that Josh was a model prisoner, to so to speak. He was uh, he's very, you know, uh, manipulative and charming and can be on his best behavior. And I had absolutely no doubt in my mind that it would continue. Also, not just his actual sentence, but in the ruling, all of Daniel's family and, and specifically a few other witnesses were given a, a no-contact order. He is not to be anywhere near us. You know, no contact is to be made with us. Um, and uh, it, when he was to be released, we were to be notified. Da- uh, my son Joel had a had an idea that maybe he had been released already, and I said, well, I, I didn't think he had been. You know, I thought to myself, that's probably, you know, it's too early, Joel. I expect he'd at least spend 18 months. But to ease your mind, I will look into it. And uh, I contacted a few people to say, 
you know, how will I find out about this? How will they tell us, you know, do they have our address, What you know, whatever. And in the process of looking into it, I found that he'd already been released in October and we were never notified, which was especially devastating to our community, to our, to my daughter. She was terrified. She's terrified. Um, not that she needs to be, but just the fact that this guy is out and none of us knew was, was horrifying to us that don't know how that slipped through the cracks, but no matter how much I wish it didn't, it did. And, uh, yeah, it's an uproar. Our community is up in arms. The world should be up in arms. This man is out and he shouldn't be out anywhere. He shouldn't be out anyways, Never mind on good behavior after 16 months. And now Josh's history before Daniel, before the situation with Daniel and Daniel's murder, uh, that's been the subject of a few uh, a few news articles I came across. A- at what point did you learn Josh's history as like a quote unquote con artist? It started right away. Actually, uh, we had people from Prince George con- um, contacting us about things that he'd done as a juvenile when he was sixteen years old. Uh, other people in Cranbrook were calling us and telling us about what he'd done there with. Uh, the, the MPs there and then Calgary. And, 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 you know, you just had to start Googling his name, which is something that has been kind of a mantra for our family since, you know, Google everyone, you know, because had Daniel known his real name, which he didn't, he told him that his name was Josh Buxton. But if you are to Google his name, Joshua Brito, up comes articles from 2008, 2009 of all the things that he'd done in Calgary in Prince George in Cranbrook in Victoria, every single one of these instances that he was involved in where he was a liar, a manipulator, a cheat. Those were already in the news. We just didn't know about them. Uh, but it was at the urging of other people to look into some of these things that we were able to find out mm-hmm. who he was. And Daniel had no idea. I can't help but imagine, like, when when you think back to to Daniel and who he is and, you, you know, in your life with, with Daniel, it must be hard to not have, you know, the the darkness of, of his death kind of interfere with your with your memories of him so i just wonder when you think of daniel does the way his life ended affect your your memories of of the good times with him or are you able to separate this for the first while i couldn't i definitely couldn't i um i felt so cheated having already lost a child and having to bury my second one it was very difficult for me to look past the unnecessary death and I know the difference between something that can be blamed and something that can't. And, and then when it came to Daniel's death, so tragically, so uh, innocently on his part that I, and I had someone to blame, it was very difficult for me to separate my love for Daniel himself and my drive to find out what really happened and make sure somebody paid for it. We just loved Daniel so much. Everybody did. His father, his his stepmother and everybody who loved Daniel, his friends, his family, like we couldn't let go of all the good about Daniel. And, and to be honest, when you think about his death, everything that made him Daniel is what got him killed. His love for people, his loyalty, his, his uh, willingness to believe everything you say, because why would anyone lie about something like that? Uh, we celebrate him all the time, you know, and I think, I do think though I could have got, a lot easier lost in the bad side of it if I didn't have these other two children to raise that I wanted them to see that there can still be joy in their life. There can still be sunshine and we've had our bad times. I mean, I've 
I've had to collect Joel downtown after work one time when he just, you know, couldn't hold it in anymore. He's been such a little rock, this poor 15-year-old boy who suddenly became the man of the family. And our our little Lainey, you know, we sheltered her quite a bit uh, when all the bad stuff was happening because it wasn't fair that she was 12 years old and had to be thrust into the spotlight of, of hate and vindictiveness and, and resentment and death, something she couldn't understand at her age. You know, and it's been very difficult, but it's made us stronger and we're very, very brave. Now, throughout our talk, you mentioned a lot, you know, the community and people of Ravelstoke identifying you and your family members. And even in what I saw online, like there's the Facebook group of people sharing their memories of, of Daniel. Can, can you talk a bit about the support you received, not so much from your family, but from other members of your community or, you know, other people? Oh, I'd, I would love to do that. Um, Revelstoke is a, a sweet little town. You know, it's uh, it's full of extremely loving and caring people. They were, Revelstoke got behind us full force. I, I couldn't have asked for a better situation in such a terrible situation. You know, there was 1,500, all, you know, almost 1,500 people at Daniel's funeral, people I didn't know. He was just, he touched so many lives, and they, in return, supported us. He had such a huge and wonderful network of friends, as do I, and I'm so fortunate for that, that we're able to hold our heads and hold our hands while we wept openly in the grocery store sometimes. You know, uh, Daniel was loved by so many people, and everybody I, I, I like to think that everybody would have that you know uh, the, the love of the community when you when something so tragic died but our our little revelstoke had been through a lot uh not starting with daniel's death but daniel's death being in the middle we lost seven young people in the less than a year in a small community like this it was just very hurting and none of them were the same situation as each other they were all very tragic and very very sad but we knew grief in this little town of ours. We knew how hard it was for families. And, you know, if there could ever be a story about a little town that pulls together for the hearts of mothers and fathers of lost children, it would be Revelstoke. Like, there, they just did every... I couldn't... I can't thank this community enough, my friends and Daniel's friends. And I always call myself the luckiest unlucky girl in the world, and that's who I am. You know, we had such a tragic situation but had so many people pulling for us and working for us and it could have it really could have been a very opposite experience for us as negative as it was and as horrifying and as as painful as this experience with losing daniel and then the process afterwards i am overwhelmed at how many people love us and care for us and i just i couldn't be more thankful It's at this point that our discussion ended. Well, at least the part of the talk that I planned to be recorded. But due to a stroke of good luck, I forgot to click the stop button and end the recording, something I don't recall ever having done before. But in this case, I'm so thankful that the tape kept rolling. After the episode credits, an unplanned piece of our discussion will serve as the perfect setup for Daniel's only professional piece of recorded music a cover of the Leonard Skinnerd song, Simple Man. So be sure to stay to the very end of this episode and hear the gift that Daniel was so excited about sharing with the world, his music. But before we get to that, I want to give a few thanks and wrap up this episode. First, I want to offer my most heartfelt condolences to the friends, family, and loved ones of Daniel Levesque. 
Despite having such a shocking and tragic end, Daniel's story is about so much more than any monster could overshadow. And Daniel's fortunate to have left behind many loved ones to maintain and celebrate his legacy. One of the driving forces of that, of course, was our guest, Stacy Thur, his mother. Stacy, you're quite simply amazing. Speaking to you was not unlike receiving a master course in what it means to be a mother. I'll be forever in awe of your drive, perseverance, positivity, and the love you display for your children. And with that, I'll end this episode of Nighttime. A huge thanks to Christy Lee of the Canadian True Crime Podcast for collaborating with me on this series. I encourage everyone who isn't already listening to, to subscribe to her show. She's the real deal. And a big thanks to the Canadian duo Voxomnia for providing the theme for this series. You can find Voxomnia through the link in the episode notes. And if you like music, do yourself a favor and get somber with Vox Somnia. If any of you listening want more from Nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. It's a dollar a month and it allows you to support the show and access the supporter exclusive feed, which provides ad-free early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes that are no longer available on this free feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. With that mentioned, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Megan M, Mitzi, Muncie, TJ, and Jennifer G. I sincerely appreciate the support you show nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com, or you can send me a voice message using the contact section of my website. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. And I was going to include some uh, some music. I, I found a recording of Daniel um, that seems like it was professionally recorded of him singing a Leonard Skinner song. Yeah, are, yeah. Are you aware of any other music he had recorded? No, that's the only one he recorded, actually. And he recorded it on July 28th, like shortly before his death. And that's why there was only one. Um, it was just in a little studio in um, in Victoria that did this, and it's quite a, quite a remarkable story too. So what happened was he had had this studio time paid for by Josh actually, and uh, he went in, and that was the first song he was going to sing. So what he did was he laid out the the guitar tracks, acoustic guitar, and then the singing. So he has two guitar tracks on it, and then after his death, the studio approached us and asked if they could finish the song for him. And so we had his friend Jack playing the drums, um, his very good friend uh, Jamie Fitchett playing the electric guitar, some of the people that in the studio playing a few other things, and that's where that final recording came from. But at his funeral, we played the acoustic version. I had never heard it until he died because it had just been recorded on the 28th, and they worked to master it so that I could at least have the acoustic version, and we were able to play it at his funeral.
They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copy can on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.